Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's first letter, first canonical letter, we would say, to the Corinthians, chapter 1. follow along. I'm going to read just the first nine verses, and then we're going to pray again. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's once again pray and ask for God's assistance as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we do bow before you. We have great cause uh, to go about, rejoice, and give thanks, and sing for the mercies that you've displayed to your people in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mercies that are new and fresh every morning. Oh, Lord God, may we taste them afresh today, this Lord's Day. May we be reminded of many of them. May we be put in mind of your kindness and goodness so undeserved by us but shown to us, shown to us in so many manifold ways, even the sun, even the rain, even every way, Lord God, that you bless the earth. How much more when we thank how you've come to us and draw near to us in Christ Jesus, your only begotten Son, to send him uh, to die in our place. Heavenly Father, put us in mind of these things. Help us to look at this portion of your word. Remind us of your goodness, your wisdom, and your truth. And help us to feed on these things. Help me to preach. Help us all to hear and to receive. And as our brother prayed, that we might be Berean and take these things and search the scriptures, whether they be so. To the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. The Old Baptist Catechism, in one of its catechetical questions, asks this, How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Good question, right? How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? And the answer the Catechism gives is not to give a lengthy apologetic, not to give evidence after evidence, so to speak, But it answers in this way. The Bible evidences itself. 
to be the word of God by the heavenliness of its doctrine, by the unity of its parts, by its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. But, with this caveat, but, the Spirit of God only, working by and with the Scriptures in our hearts, is able fully to persuade us that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible gives its own evidence for being the Word of God. There's a lot compressed into that little phrase, the Word of God. What do we mean by that? This is the Word of the living God. God Himself has spoken to us. God Himself has caused it to be graphically written down in the Scriptures. The hegraphe of the Scriptures. We have the writings, the Scriptures themselves, the Word of God written down. And not only so, but it's an authoritative word. God is its author, and by reason of the fact that God is its author, it's given to us on His authority. And so we ought to pay attention. We ought to give heed any time we're reading the Scriptures, hearing the Scriptures read before us in the congregation, at home, in family worship, or in any other setting, and as we hear the Word of God expounded. Now, why do we believe in expository preaching? Well, we could say for the very same reasons that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, because of the evidence it gives in its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. Now, today, my purpose here is to begin an exposition, if you will, of 1 Corinthians. Of 1 Corinthians, we, a while back, had an introduction, kind of a background out of Acts 18, to the establishing of the church in Corinth. Today, we're going to uh, dive into the exposition of the book itself. And for something of an outline, a roadmap from where we are going, it is this. We're going to have review and reminders, and then secondly, an interesting interim, an interesting interim. Thirdly, some threads and themes, some threads and themes to the book of 1 Corinthians. And then fourthly, the volume and variety, even in these few opening verses, the volume and variety in these few opening verses. Well, first of all, slight review, short review, and some reminders of what we saw going back to Acts chapter 18 and how the church in Corinth was established. Paul, you remember, was on his second missionary journey. He had set out, this time with Silas. There was that falling out with Barnabas, and Barnabas had gone his separate way, and Paul took Silas as his traveling companion, and they set out, first of all, to visit the churches that they had already ministered and established. All went well for quite a while until they got to some new places. Things got a little rough. You remember in Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten and put into the jail. And by the grace of God, the jailer was converted, uh, mended up their wounds, and they moved on from there. But As they moved on again in Thessalonica and Berea, they met with trouble. They were stoned and persecuted and driven out of those places. And then Paul and Silas, or Silas and Timothy, I should say, remained there in Berea. Along the way, Paul had picked up Timothy 
as being one of their traveling companions as well. And Paul alone went on to the city of Athens. And there he was treated with some disdain and largely ignored. And then he traveled on to Corinth. He came then to Corinth. And for reasons not completely clear, which we discussed last time, he set about plying his trade of tent making, you remember. And it seems that Paul was greatly disheartened and discouraged and perhaps, probably, physically wearied from all his travels and from his beatings and his persecution. And he probably just settled down there. I'm going to work at my trade, whatever the reasons were. When, when Silas and Timothy did finally come, then Paul was pressed in his spirit, pressed in his spirit to testify that Jesus is the Christ, to begin to preach him in the synagogues. He had been teaching in the synagogues up till then, perhaps laying the foundation, but here now he boldly proclaims Christ in the synagogues. The Lord had to speak to Paul and encourage him and say to him, Continue to preach, for I have much people in this city. So Paul stayed there over a year and a half, and a church was formed and planted in the unlikeliest of places, Corinth, a city known for its wickedness, uh, even among the pagans. Well, that brings us in the second place to an interesting interim, an interesting interim. And I'm just going to kind of bullet point some of the things that happen between Paul's planting the church there in Corinth and what we begin to read about in 1 Corinthians. First of all, after Paul left Corinth, he stopped in Ephesus. He stopped in Ephesus. Now, they were on a trade route. They were both uh, Roman colonies, so it was an easy route. So he stops in, in Ephesus, even though it was out of his way, where his intention was to get to Jerusalem in time for the feast. And there it says he left Aquila and Priscilla. Now you'll remember that Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. And Aquila was of the same trade. They were both tent makers, and Paul stayed with them. And the evidence seems to be that Aquila and Priscilla were already converted. They were already Christians when Paul met them. But no doubt they grew in their understanding and their faith in that time that they spent with Paul. And they gave him great support. Now, their reasons for going to Ephesus aren't altogether clear, but he had a trade that was portable, and so he could take it with him and go to Ephesus. Secondly, Paul then sailed on, and he strengthened the disciples in Syria en route to Jerusalem. Now, we wonder if Paul ever got to Jerusalem in time. The scriptures don't tell us, and it doesn't say that he spent any great time there except to greet the church. Thirdly, in the interim, in the meantime, Apollos had come to Ephesus. Apollos had come to Ephesus, and he was a bold and eloquent preacher, mighty in the scriptures, the scripture says. But he knew only the baptism of John. He didn't fully understand the gospel, apparently. Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and instructed him in the way of truth more perfectly, instructed him in the way of righteousness. So he had a fuller and full grasp of the gospel. So then Paul went on to Corinth, I'm sorry, Apollos himself went on to Corinth, and the brethren from Ephesus commended him. 
and said, this is a good man, a good faithful minister. And he went there and he ministered in Corinth. Okay? This helps us to understand what we're going to read later on when it, Paul says, I planted and Apollos came and watered and God gave the increase. Paul on his third, goes on his third missionary journey now, and he spends three months, two years, and a season, the scripture says in that order, three months, two years, and a season in Ephesus. During this day, he writes 1 Corinthians, and perhaps he wrote 2 Corinthians as well. Now, sometime prior to this, Paul had written an earlier letter to the Corinthians. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So Paul's care for all the churches, as he talks about, which burdened him greatly, did not leave him. And even though he wasn't in Corinth, he still was concerned for the goings-on there at the church. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in an epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And then he goes on to clarify what he meant by that. Okay? So apparently that was an issue and a problem that Paul addressed in that epistle. What else he wrote about, we don't know. That epistle is lost to history. But there was this theme at least. Not to keep company with a sexually immoral now, why was that of interest? Well, it was difficult to do in a place like Corinth to keep yourselves apart from the sexually immoral. And so he says, I don't mean the worldlings. I mean the professing Christians who are sexually immoral. So sometime before writing 2 Corinthians, Paul also made a second visit to Corinth. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 14, where we read this. Now for the third time, he says, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. Okay? So evidently, Paul had been there a second time, as he is now preparing to go there for a third time. Look with me also down at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. There was trouble in the church. There seemed to be trouble in the church at Corinth from the get-go, and it seemed to linger on through many years. Though Paul spent a good deal of time seeking to establish it, and though Apollos had come and helped to water it, and establish the brethren, there were still many problems in the church. So when did Paul make this second trip? Well, the scriptures do not exactly record when he made this second visit. Some say he probably made a, a brief visit during his long stay at Ephesus. And like I already indicated, it would be an easy uh, a trip to go by ship over to Corinth and back to Ephesus. So he could have taken a short trip and dealt with some things in the church. Another theory is surmised from reading Acts chapter 19. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. And we'll actually back up into chapter 18. 
We'll back all the way up to verse 21 of chapter 18. Paul was at Ephesus in verse 20. It says, they asked him to stay a longer time with them. He did not consent. Now this is for that brief uh, stop before he went on to Jerusalem. But took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And he did indeed keep his word and come back later. And when he had launched landed, I'm sorry, at Caesarea, and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, etc. So the upper regions would be to go from Corinth by land through the craggy uh, area of Achaia and Macedonia over unto Ephesus. So there's a good indication that this is what happened. Paul returned, came to Corinth for this second visit, and found that it was in good hands in some sense, because Apollos was there. So he made his journey onward over to Ephesus. Okay, So that's why we read that Paul is coming a third time, because he had already come a second time. Okay? Sorry, that might have been boring and lengthy, but <laughs> giving you the background. That brings us in the third place to some threads and themes. Threads and themes that we find in 1 Corinthians. Having had a brief review and reminder of the planting of the church, and having surveyed that interesting interim, we look at some of the threads and themes that Paul weaves throughout this first epistle to the Corinthians. First, he writes how to live godly in a pagan world. He addresses that time and again. Uh, Corinth was known for its wickedness. The temple of Aphrodite was there, the goddess of love, as she was called, more likely a goddess of hedonism in a real sense. To Corinthian eyes, meant to commit fornication. It was a common problem. There were many temple prostitutes in this city, so it was an ungodly, pagan place to live. How are these Christians going to live out their Christian faith in an environment like that? Okay, So Paul addresses that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we hear that and think of that, are we not in need of that instruction in a growingly pagan world that we live in? 
A second theme that he weaves throughout the book is Catholicity without compromise. Catholicity without compromise. A universal love and respect and regard for those who are brothers in Christ. A regard for those who are brothers in Christ without compromising biblical principles. He weaves this throughout, how we are to love and embrace one another, but not to compromise in, in moral purity and not to compromise in a host of other areas. Thirdly, he weaves throughout this book the need for unity and gratitude for the generous gifts that God had bestowed upon the church at Corinth. We'll find out that God bestowed many gifts upon the church at Corinth, which led to some trouble and some disunity and to some very selfish acting out of things. And Paul has to address this, bring them back again to humbly use those gifts for the glory of God and to give him all the praise for the use of them. Fourthly, he, he addresses some other practical issues, a number of practical issues and some doctrinal errors. For the most part, he's not dealing with correcting doctrines, but he has to at length in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the doctrine of the resurrection. For the rest, it's more correcting some of their practical errors. Fifthly, there's edification over gifter size, if you will. Paul underscores the fact that the gifts are for edification, not for performance, not to draw attention to themselves, okay? And he says, I'd rather, I'd rather be silent in the church. I'd rather uh, speak clear words for edification than speak in tongues and all the gifts that God has given me to exercise and calls the church to follow in that same path. And then decency and order in the church. He's having to address that over and over again. They seem to get out of order. There seem to be a wildness, if you will, within the church. And he has to bring them back and remind them that all things are to be done decently and in order in the church of Christ. Well, that brings us in the fourth place to the volume and variety, the volume and variety in these first few verses. Let's read again verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to call your attention to this word called. We see it mentioned a couple times here. Look with me. Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. Or you could drop those two words to be and just called an apostle. Called an apostle. And then in verse 2 he says, to those who are called to be saints. Or called saints. And then drop down to verse uh, 26 of this chapter as well. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty are called. Well, what is this calling that he speaks of? 
Christians, I think, are often confused and go astray over this question of calling. Often asking themselves, what is God calling me to do? And being anxious and troubled about it because they are expecting something that the scriptures don't really set out as something they w- we should expect. That God should somehow communicate to us, your special calling is X, Y, and Z. Okay? God give us wisdom and help in this area. As I see it, there are three divisions to our calling. There are three divisions to our calling. There's natural or creational callings. There's natural or creational callings. There's providential callings. And then there are those special and unique callings that we read about. First of all, there are things that are by the very order of creation or nature callings upon our lives. Things that call us to certain duties and responsibilities and obligations. Men and women are different Men and women are different. We have to say that and repeat it, I guess. Men and women are different and have different callings on their lives consequent to their sex. If G.K. Kesterson had to say it over a hundred years ago, how much more do we have to say it today? The need of the hour is to state the obvious. The need of the hour is to state the obvious. Okay, by reason of our sex, there are certain callings upon our lives. Men are called to lead. Women are called to follow. Okay? Becoming husbands and wives comes with its own distinct calling, and with it, many privileges and responsibilities. Husbands, love your wives. Watch over them. Care for them. Wives, reverence your husbands. Submit to them. Support them in all that they do. So we're called to these things by the very nature of creation. We are all children of our parents, And that calls us to certain obligations. Honor thy father and thy mother. By very nature and the order of creation, we're called to be children to our parents and to honor them and to respect them and do all that we can in their support. On the other side, fathers and mothers are thereby called to various duties and obligations to care for, nurture, and provide, and also to teach their children, and especially to teach their children in the ways of the Lord, to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to command our children after us to walk in the ways of the Lord. Well, if that's true for us, it's true for the Corinthians to live out these creational, natural callings in a pagan world. I was in the house of an Amish family this week. Uh, They had seven children. And I don't think there was any confusion about (laughs) their callings as man, woman, and even as the children in their place. What else does God call us to by nature? He calls us to work. He created Adam and he put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. That is a calling by nature from creation that doesn't change because of the curse it doesn't change under the gospel we're still called to work we're called to be diligent in our callings and to do our work to the glory of God we need to be reminded of that Christians above all should be diligent in their work and to show forth uh, their 
obedience to God's calling in that area. Coupled with that, coupled with that, is stewardship. He put Adam in the garden to tend and to keep it, not to abuse it and not to overrun it, not to pollute and damage it. So we're called to a stewardship in all our work, a stewardship in all that God puts into our hands. There is by nature that calling upon our lives. May God help us to be diligent in that. Secondly, there are providential callings. There are providential callings upon our lives. Where we are born, where we are raised, where where we end up living comes with it certain obligations. Do we have an obligation to vote and to pay taxes, to honor our leaders, to obey the laws of the land? There's all kinds of providential things that we're called to in God's good time. Secondly, another area of providential calling, and John alluded to it this morning, is our calling, as we read, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Whatever our status is, we need to recognize it and receive it and live according to our calling. If we're called, With great riches and wealth, we have a responsibility to use all that for the glory of God. If we're called as a poor man, we're to do that to the glory of God. We'll go on to read in James chapter 2 that God has chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. So even if we're called being poor, we're to live out uh, the Christian life according to our status and not to somehow uh, try to be something that we are not, but to accept the good providence of God in our lives. Paul will write later, he writes uh, to the Corinthians later, are you called being a servant? Or literally, are you called being a slave? Care not for it. Don't be anxious about it. Don't be all troubled about it. But if you may be free, use it rather. Okay? Paul does not ipso facto condemn slavery, but he says to the slave, if you can be free, use it rather to the glory of God. But if, in the providence of God, you're called as a slave, don't be anxious about it. Live to the glory of God under the status that God has called you, even if it is being a servant, a slave. So whatever station we have in life, we need to live it out to the glory of God. That brings us to those special callings, the special callings. These can be mediated or immediate. What do I mean by that? You'll see. The Christian calling is immediate and mediated. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We read here that they're called saints. Those in Corinth were called saints in 2 Timothy Uh, Chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before Time began. 
Our calling as Christians is supernatural. God calls us by His grace to live out a holy life. We can only do so by the grace and power of Almighty God. It is a holy calling. And so when he writes to the Corinthians and says, You are called saints, that is a calling we need to live up to by the grace and mercy of God. So there's a sense in which it's immediate. It's the power of God that takes the stony heart and removes it and gives us a heart of flesh. That's the work of regeneration that he alone can do. We can't change our hearts. The leopard can't change his spots. We can't change our ways. God has to convert us by his grace. But we live out that Christian life according to mediated principles, taking hold of the means of grace, taking hold of the word of God, living in fellowship with the people of God. We live out our Christian life according to that calling. Uh, look with me at uh, one other verse, Second Peter, yeah, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Again, noting this special calling of the Christian, the special calling of God, that supernatural calling of the Christian. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. If God indeed has called us by his grace and mercy to live in Christ Jesus, to live for his glory, to be one of his redeemed saints, we're to so live out our lives to make sure that calling is true indeed. It would be incongruous for us to live ungodly if we're called as saints to live godly in Christ Jesus. And that's the proof in the pudding that God indeed has called us, elected us from time immemorial, from time past, from eternity past. God has chosen his elect, but we prove it out in the way that we live out our calling in this life. Secondly, another area of special callings are calls to office. We read about prophets being called to the prophetic ministry, and this is often done immediately when God calls Ezekiel, when God calls Jeremiah and sends them out to be prophets. This is the immediate voice of God calling them. The apostles themselves were called immediately. They were witnesses of Christ. They were witnesses of his sufferings and these things, and Christ himself called them and put them in that office. Even in the case of Matthias, where lots were cast to choose him, it was God's disposing that settled upon Matthias to be apostle. What about pastors and deacons in the church? Well, that's a special calling, if you will, a special office, but that's conducted through the united voice of the people of God, giving their uh, express uh, will to the people. Well, that brings us, as we think about that, to there's so many modern claims to people saying what? God has called me to do X. God has called me to do X, Y, and Z. Well, we need to be very careful how we listen to those things. God has called you how? Did he speak to you in a voice? By a special revelation? 
Very doubtful. The scripture says those are very rare instances. And it's very doubtful that God has called you to X, Y, and Z by a special revelation. Okay? Now, God might be directing you in a certain area. God might be directing you to conduct some ministry because providentially He's put this in your lap. He's set it before your eyes. He's burdened your heart with this. When many of our missionaries go to the mission field, it's because God has put that field upon their heart. It's not a special call of revelation from heaven. God rending the heavens and say, go to such and such a place, but directing their hearts and their thoughts as they go along and preparing them for the work before them. The other thing we need to be watchful and mindful of is extra-biblical ministries. People saying, God's called me to be a music minister. A music minister? I can't find that in my New Testament. I've looked back and forth, front and backwards. There was a calling to music ministers under the Old Testament, if you will, in the temple worship, but no such calling in the New Testament. So what do we say? Well, you can be a Christian and be a musician and use those gifts to the glory of God, but be careful of saying that's a special ministry of the Lord because the scriptures do not support such a claim. Well, here in, uh, back to 1 Corinthians, Paul says he is called. He is called uniquely to be an apostle. This is a subject we often pass over at the start of most of Paul's epistles. But in Corinth, in Corinth, this was a nail that kept popping out and needed to be hammered again and again to get it to stick, especially when you come to 2 Corinthians. They despised Paul's apostleship. They didn't think much of him. They had their own super apostles, and they didn't think that Paul's calling was unique in that regard. So Paul has to underscore the fact that he is called to be an apostle and he's called to it by the will of God. God called him to it. Paul didn't come up with the idea. Paul didn't sit around and say, hey, I would like the title apostle. I'm going to use that when I go to minister. Then maybe they'll listen to me. No, Paul says, I am called to it by the will of God. Look with me at, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. And notice how Paul views this and regards himself as to his call to the apostleship. Jumping in at verse 9. Well, we'll back up uh, to verse 8. He's talking about the fact that Christ, after his resurrection, appeared unto many. Then, last of all, verse 8, He was seen by me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Notice that weighs still on his heart, weighs still on his mind. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Okay, so Paul notes that he is an apostle by the grace and calling of God. Even though he feels unworthy of such a high calling and such an office because of the way that he persecuted the church of God. 
Let us stop here and learn a lesson. It is no part of true humility to deny or diminish what we are and what we are called to by the grace of God. It is no part of true humility to deny what we are or what we've been called to by the grace of God. It may seem a mark of humility for us to say, well, I'm not really a father because we are not the father we wish or desire to be. We're not the father that we want to be, and therefore we would rather just say, I'm not really a father as a mark of humility. But it should rather chide us to greater resolve. By nature and providence, I am a father, and by saving grace, a Christian father. And knowing that, I should seek him the more earnestly, to be worthy of that calling, to live in a way in keeping with that calling. And whatever your calling is, a father, a mother, a pastor, a deacon, whatever you're called to by the grace of God, It is no mark of humility to deny that, but say, by the grace of God, this is what I am. And that's why Paul had to underscore the fact that he is an apostle. Though he feels unworthy to be called to the apostleship, he's not going to diminish the fact that God called him to it. He's going to try to live up to it, to the maximum, to the glory of God. Going back then to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 again. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Or you might, it might well be translated Sosthenes, the brother. Now, who was Sosthenes? Well, if you remember going back to Acts chapter 18, Sosthenes was one of the rulers of the synagogue. One of the rulers of the synagogue that the Corinthians beat because uh, they thought he was somehow siding with the Apostle Paul. And at some point, he did. At some point, he must have come to faith. At some point, he is here called the brother. And somehow, Paul, Sothenes might have been with him there in Ephesus when Paul is writing this epistle to the Corinthians. He, he says, Sosthenes, our brother, so that the brethren back in Corinth could know that he was standing there with the Apostle Paul. There's no indication here that Sosthenes helped to write this epistle, but only that he was standing there with the Apostle Paul, and that would have been a way for the people in Corinth to receive more gladly and graciously all that Paul had sent and written them in this epistle. Then moving on to verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, that word church, Ecclesia has the idea of a called out assembly, a body of believers. Here again, the idea of calling. Here they're called out to be a distinct organization, a distinct body of Christ. And this is what characterizes them. They are called to be saints. There are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, what does he mean here when he says sanctified? Because there's two aspects to sanctification for the Christian in the New Testament. There are two aspects of it. And sometimes we put them in these two categories. Definitive and progressive sanctification. Definitive and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is by definition that we are, by the grace of God, set apart. 
We are set apart for no good thing in us. It's not a mark of holiness in our lives. We are set apart by His grace and mercy. As we could read about in the Old Testament, a holy mountain. Well, there's nothing sanctimonious about that mountain in and of itself, except the fact that God set it apart in some way. So there is such a thing as definitive setting apart of the people of God by His grace and calling them. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. Two aspects to sanctification. By definition, definitively, we are sanctified, we are set apart, and then progressively. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So here's this idea of definitive setting aside of the people of God. God elected them through His foreknowledge from all eternity, And he set them apart by his spirit. And what follows is obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. As we read of in 1 John, we are cleansed. We're continually cleansed as we walk and follow Christ. Which brings us to the second aspect of sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Growing in grace. Growing in holiness. Being more and more conformed to the Holy One, Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the work of progressive sanctification. So Paul, what are you talking about here? What are you talking about here in verse 2? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. I think his emphasis here is that definitive setting apart of the people of God and that calling that is upon them as saints. And what follows is all the working out of our salvation through progressive sanctification. Now this designation called saints is not simply a, a new title, a new name, but a new calling above and beyond those natural and providential callings, as we noted. Such called saints make up the church at Corinth. They're not all super holy Christians, but they're, the calling of God is upon their lives because God has done such a work of grace in their lives, putting them in the church of God. We might have all a long way to progress in grace and sanctification. But we are by calling, being set apart by God, part of the church of God. Such called saints were those at Corinth. And then note he says this, With all that in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here again is part of that Catholicity of spirit. We are united by faith, by calling, with all the saints of God throughout the world, in every place. You know what a blessing it is to meet a Christian from some other country, and yet there's some kind of 
uh, forensic fellowship that you can enjoy with them. Some sweetness because we're of the same spirit, of the same heart and same mind because of the work of the grace of God in us. Okay, so here he says that work of grace, that calling, that setting apart of you as Christians is the same work of grace that God is doing with all that in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the universal experience and uniting bond among all true Christians. And then what does he say to them? Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is there a blessing and a benefit to such a greeting? Is there a blessing and a benefit to such a greeting? Unlike the Word of Faith movement, we do not believe there is some kinetic or spiritual power in the vocalization of the words themselves, just by saying grace and peace, that there's some power in the vocalization of those words themselves. But we do believe the conveying of sentiments are a blessing in expressing the heart of one Christian to another, one person to another. There's something in those words. Those words are edifying, encouraging when we greet one another in such ways. Much more when we know that that sediment is also wedded with the prayers to God for us. When we know the people of God have our interests in their hearts and they're praying and seeking our welfare as well. So when Paul writes grace to you and peace, it's not just a nice greeting and just nice words. There's something much more to it. These two great areas, grace and peace, these might be used generically. Often they were used generically as some kind of a greeting, as if we would say health and goodwill to you. But here I think Paul has something more in mind. He speaks of grace. He wants the people of God to be the recipients of grace, the grace of God that brings salvation, that changes their hearts, that conforms them more and more to Christ. He wants that grace to go to them, to continue to them, and so he greets them in that way. Grace to you and peace. What peace? The peace of God that passes all understanding, which can keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of reconciliation. God was set against us because we were set against him. We were in rebellion against the living and true God. And through Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled. Now we're no more at war with the living God. We're at peace with him. And Paul wants us to enjoy that peace, the blessedness of that peace in our relationship with God and then in our relationship with one another. Well, that's all we're going to get to today is through verse 3. A couple lessons to take away, which we've already seen, but just to hit them again. First of all, this. Christ will build his church. Christ will indeed build his church. As we look back over the history of the church in Corinth and all that went on to bring it about, we see that Christ was building his church. It may seem to be with fits and starts, with obstacles and impediments, and all the human instruments he employs can be weak and contemptible, as Paul describes himself. My bodily presence was weak and contemptible. 
It might be unartful and ineloquent. Paul says, I wasn't very eloquent. I just tried to speak plainly. Okay? God might be using men such as that. But his truth and grace and spirit will prevail. God is pleased to use the frailty of human instruments to bring about the establishing of his church, to feed the people of God, and to teach them his word. And they might do it imperfectly, but God can use such feeble means. Secondly, know and pursue your calling in every area. Know and pursue your calling in every area with faithfulness and diligence. With faithfulness and diligence. All those natural callings, the providential callings of God, or whatever special callings of God in your life. Know and pursue your calling with faithfulness and diligence. Read the book of Proverbs, what practical instruction it gives for us to be diligent in our callings, in our labors. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before mean men. Okay? If we're diligent in our callings. As men, we need to be men. We need to quit ourselves like men. We need to be bold and courageous. We need to be leaders in our homes and families. We need to do all the things we're called to do. But especially, but especially, we need to make our calling an election sure. Are you called of God to salvation in Christ Jesus? Make sure of it. Give all diligence. Don't be content if you're not sure. Seek the Lord's favor. Know his blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. If that's not your song and testimony, we need to seek the Lord. Give all diligence that we're really in the bonds of Christ Jesus. We're saved by his grace and we're one of his. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you for your word and we do pray for grace to live by it. Every needed grace. Lord God, that this calling upon us to be saints would not be just in word, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to live godly in Christ Jesus. Even in the pagan world that we are increasingly living in, help us to live wisely. Help us to be diligent in every area that you call us to. Help us to do it all to the glory of God. Help us to all lay it at your feet and give you the praise for every success and acknowledge your hand in every way along the way. Help us, we ask, and help us to honor you in this Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, we're dismissed.